listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work done by the researchers, we catch up with them to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Daiva, and this time I am joined by my co-host Shruti. Hello. Today we are here with Dr. Joshua Ellen, and we're going to be talking about entering the age of the blockchain of things. So, Dr. Joshua, could you please tell us a little about this topic? Yeah, the topic on the blockchain of, of things really emerged from um, various research that we were undertaking at the university. One on blockchain, which is all about decentralization and uh, dis- disintermediation of services. And the other one on the Internet of Things, which is really about integrating computational devices and sensors into the everyday world to provide some sort of benefits to the users. What would you name as uh, your favorite uh, Internet of Things uh, application yep. that you've seen? Um, so that's quite a tough one in regards to my favorite one, um, home automation and any device really that isn't at the forefront where the, the device isn't important, but it's playing some role in the background, uh, allowing for our day-to-day lives to be more efficient. So you could consider the scenario, let's say, where you wake up And if you have to take medication, you might have a smart medical box. And if you don't take the medication, it might inform your doctor. If you're leaving your house, you might see a glow in the corner and that glow might be your umbrella telling you to take it because it's going to rain. So it's a lot of these devices where it's not direct interaction with the device, but it provides some means of efficiency in a better day-to-day life. In 2004, I visited the Panasonic Technology Center and they already had a a house designed with an imaginary family where the fridge was ordering food supplies and uh, there was automatic translation and obviously we didn't have these technologies yet. But the fact that they already had some kind of semi-functional prototypes shows that these technologies had been around for quite a while. And why do you think it takes so long for us to see them in our daily lives? So the technology really, uh, it's there nowadays, to say the truth. It's been there since the early 2000s. Um, Mark Weiser, he's one of the visionaries in the area of ubiquitous computing. He had said, uh, this technology, this ubiquitous computing will go into the background and we won't even know that it's there. And in the 2000s, wireless sensor networks made a debut. And the idea was that we would have these sensors embedded into our environments that wouldn't cost more than a few dollars. And it was envisaged back then that these devices would cost a few dollars. The reality is, though, they still cost a few hundred dollars. And whether that's because of technology advancements not making the advancement that we expected, or whether it's because of economies of scale where we didn't sell enough to be able to decrease the cost to cost a few dollars, I'm not sure. One particular problem that I see in reaching this reality is the fact that a lot of IoT systems, platforms, they're very proprietary. You're locked into a particular system. If I have a home automation system created by company X, I can't go and buy lights created by company Y, or at least there is some integration, but you're locked into what they support. We need to move towards more open standards, allowing for any device to speak with any device. So more than technology issues, it's more a social issue, I would say, and a governance issue. So what would you say is your primary inspiration behind taking up this study? So I'm heavily interested in 
creating uh, systems that allow for programmers to easily program the IoT uh, device world whilst not losing efficiency. And so that was my main area of interest. And then in achieving this, I worked on what we call virtual machines. And then um, there was a platform proposed, a blockchain platform called Ethereum. And the way that they differentiated what they were doing from Bitcoin was that they're not just allowing for individuals to transact in Bitcoin, but they're also allowing for individuals to write programs that execute on a blockchain. And they achieved this using a virtual machine. So I'm like, ah, my research area, excellent, let me look into it. And then whilst I was working in virtual machines for the blockchain space, I started to notice that there's these two different worlds. There's this blockchain machine made up of many computers around the world that is heavily resource hungry. It requires a lot of computers to create this single decentralized network. And then you have IoT devices, these really cheap devices that don't have much computational power. How can we integrate the two? So it was more of an academic challenge in regards to why I went down this area. And then I'm also quite interested in how far can we push the trust of the blockchain into these IoT devices. As soon as you leave the blockchain, you lose all trust that the blockchain brings with it. So how can we push this to the sensor data that is feeding information into the blockchain to build some guarantees over there? So who would then keep the entire distributed ledger if, when these devices are so limited, as you say? That's right. So there's various initiatives. There's initiatives that try to create lightweight blockchains that work on IoT devices. There are initiatives that then try to say, we're not going to put the blockchain onto the IoT device. We're going to trust the IoT device. Then one question is, if you're trusting the IoT device and you're the provider of a service, do you expect your, your consumers to trust the same device? So different people are working on different ways of building the trust in the device, either through redundancy that the consumers can provide their own sensors that they might trust, or through trust networks that you might say, I trust the Siemens sensor 90% and I trust the IBM sensor that I bought 80%. So there's some element of building trust in the network and also instilling an amount of risk on the consumer. But that risk is traded off for the automation that they receive. Could you tell us a little about the split virtual machine that is mentioned? Yeah. So one One particular problem in the current version of Ethereum is that the virtual machine that they use, it requires a very large bit width. So each computation, if we were to perform one plus one, it's not just a matter of storing that one in what we call a single bit or even in a number that can fit, let's say, from one to three to seven, six, seven, which we would call a short or an integer. In Ethereum, it requires much more data to store that one. And performing this computation takes a long of time. And this it was created like that on purpose because they're dealing typically with cryptographic keys that are very large. So they needed this or they thought that they needed that in Ethereum. Executing that, what we call the Ethereum virtual machine on an IoT device, there's no way you're going to do it. So the, the motivation behind the work was, can we create a programming language that executes both in the blockchain, but the same programming language it will also execute on the IoT device? So the, the idea is, let's create an Ethereum-like virtual machine that removes away the complexities that we can't execute on the IoT device and allow for code that can execute on the IoT device to be compiled down to that device. So that was the first steps. And then we started to know that 
that might not, not be the right way forward because our coders have to think about where the code is going to execute and how the code is going to communicate with the different parts. So now we're working on what we're calling the unified programming model. The idea is that a coder develops using a single language, a single program, not even knowing where the code is going to execute. Is it going to execute on the blockchain? Is it going to execute on an IoT device? Is it going to execute across two different blockchains? So the idea is that the coder will only say, I want this particular piece of code to execute in a trusted area because I need the guarantees and I don't care where the other code is executed. And then the program can be compiled down to the different parts. So that, that's where we're heading to now. So before we get into more technical details, yeah. let's hear the article which appeared in the 24th issue of Think in June 2018. It's read by Chris Stiles. Entering the age of the blockchain of things. Written by Dr. Joshua Ilu and Professor Gordon Patch. It's quarter to midnight. You're finishing your dinner party. It was a terrific evening, but a headache has started to niggle. Due to your intolerance, you specifically bought the wine with no added sulfites. Or so you thought. Suspecting that something might be amiss, you scan the bottle with your phone. Up pops a detailed list of certificates, showing that all the production processes, ensuring that sulfites weren't added, and that all the necessary spot checks were made. Maybe you just had one too many, you think. Heading to bed, you walk over to your dispenser and down a couple of glasses of water. As the last water bottle gurgles empty, the dispenser automatically places an order for a few new ones and pays for them straight away to benefit from the 10% discount you get with advance payment. As your eyes start to feel heavy, you quickly set your automated home system to let the delivery man in after verification from your security camera to drop off the water bottles. You have a very long day at work tomorrow, and there is no way you're going to be getting back before seven. Such a future seems distant, but it could actually be implemented tomorrow. Technically, that entire scenario could have been our reality a decade ago. But there is one problem we're still having trouble with. Trust. All these services require trust. Trust that the farmers and their field sensors are inputting correct data. That the actual grapes and all the production processes are being tracked from farm to table that the water delivery company will indeed deliver that order. In the past, obtaining such trust in automated systems required involving a number of entities. The farming co-op, the post office, the water supply company, the bank and the government. But is such centralised trust required? No. The Internet of Things, IoT, is a system of internet-connected computational devices that can sense and act on their environment. Adding blockchain, a decentralized digital ledger technology, DLT, will enable a way forward to decentralize these services in a trustless manner. The blockchain of things. The internet has become an integral part of life for many, providing instant communication, news, updates from social circles, and a multitude of services from wherever you may be. The IoT takes the internet to the next level, whereby not only are services made digitally available, but interactions with the real world is digitally integrated as well. This capability is made possible by embedding internet-connected computational devices into existing products or spaces, which in turn enables more efficient processes. Vineyard employees no longer need to manually check temperature, humidity, moisture, or other environmental factors, since they can automatically be sensed by the smart IoT system, which can deliver an optimum amount of water at just the right times. Similarly, a smart home system could detect a water delivery employee and automatically give the employee access to drop off the delivery. If the IoT can enable such automation, then why is the blockchain technology needed? 
It all boils down to trust. If consumers are fine with paying up front for the delivery of water and trust the water delivery company to deliver, then a blockchain solution is not required. What does blockchain mean to you? Blockchain is all about trust, or rather the ability to remove trust from a centralized authority by making use of a decentralized system with inbuilt trust. Consider how you typically send money to a friend using a bank account. You store money in an account. The banks keep track of your funds. For any transactions you make, the bank will alter your balance accordingly. Upon sending money to your friend, you trust that the bank will perform and transfer the funds and update your account balance correctly. The entire process requires trust. It's not that trust in banks and other institutes need necessarily be questioned, but for services in which centralized trust is not acceptable, blockchain technologies provide a solution. The recent blockchain and DLT hype, however, seems to indicate that consumers and users are organically expecting more transparency and decentralization of trust in systems which they use. It is hard to argue against a system which imposes more transparency, with inbuilt guarantees rather than requiring trust in institutions. We envisage that consumers in the future will prefer products and services with built-in trust mechanisms. By integrating blockchain with the IoT, let's call it the blockchain of things, more assurance of real-world physical processes can be provided. For example, ensuring that vineyard environmental sensor data was not tampered with, and that payment is only released to the water company upon delivery. To realise the blockchain of things, we need to overcome a number of challenges. Many devices used within the IoT have around 10 kilobytes of memory and 100 kilobytes of storage space. That's around 400,000 times less memory and 100,000 times less storage space than the mobile phones which most of us carry around in our pockets. On the other hand, most blockchain systems require substantially more storage space than is available on mobiles, let alone resource-constraint IoT devices. Also, typical blockchain software requires around 500 megabytes of memory, 50,000 times more than is available on such devices, and more than 600 gigabytes of program space. Recent work at the University of Malta attempts to overcome this challenge using split virtual machines. This separates parts of the code that are more resource-hungry and sends them to the network's most powerful machines. This leaves less resource-hungry parts to be run on resource-constraint IoT devices. Another challenge is that of connectivity. IoT devices tend to connect to the internet and surrounding devices in an ad hoc manner, only when requiring services. Blockchain systems need to be connected constantly, able to receive all new transactions pertaining to the blockchain network. Recommended solutions to overcome this provide lighter weight communication, require less always-on connectivity, and faster transactions. Such communication protocols include IoTA's Tangle and Bitcoin's Lightning Network. Can IoTs be trusted? The final problem faced is that of trust. On a blockchain system, the network itself ensures that transactions are performed in a well-regulated fashion. For instance, when one uses a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin, the network itself ensures that the user does not overspend money without having to resort to trusted entities such as banks or government authorities. Similarly, a blockchain system may use smart contracts to regulate an auction. The network, according to the rules set out by the smart contract, would ensure that no one can outbid someone with a lower bid and that once an auction is closed, normal bids will be accepted. These guarantees, without the need to trust any individual entity, are the reasons why everyone is so excited about blockchain and related DLTs, 
As long as the transaction remains on the blockchain, these technologies ensure well-founded trust. But what happens when the bits leak from the blockchain to affect the real world? Consider extending the blockchain-based auction to also cover item delivery. How can the network ensure that the seller is not lying if they say they have sent the item? Should it believe the buyer if he claims that he has not received the item? What if fulfillment of the transaction involves other parties? The courier service, the delivery person, the porter at the building where the buyer lives? Whose information should be trusted? In real life, trust is built over a network of people, news reports and so on, some of which we trust more than others. A treatment recommendation from a doctor may be trusted more than the same recommendation from a friend. We decide what to trust based on who provides us the information and where we think they obtain that information from. We are working on a solution to build trust over the blockchain of things by mimicking these networks of trust. I may trust a thermometer installed in my building, but not the device installed by the landlord on the washing machine to keep track of how many times it's been used. Welcome back to the podcast. We're here with Dr. Joshua Lal and we're talking about entering the age of the blockchain of things. Doctor, when I read the article by myself, I had to read it a couple of times to actually understand everything because it was quite complex to comprehend. Now, if one were to ask you to explain this entire concept in just two sentences to explain to a layman, suppose someone who has no prior information about this, how would you do it? Okay, it's going to take a few more than two sentences, but I'll I'll be quite short. So if you think about uh, banks, um, we trust the bank. And when I want to send my money to someone else, I trust that the bank will execute that transaction. The bank can choose to to transfer that money. It can also choose not to. What cryptocurrencies, which are built on blockchains, provide is for the ability for me to transfer my money directly to you. And no one can stop that transfer from happening. There's no single service provider. So the blockchain removes single points of trust, single service providers from the equation. So if we think about health, it's about creating a system where my data is not stored by a single owner, but allows for me to control my data and allows for me to decide when I want to transact with another individual. That made a lot of sense. Very good. I would also like to know if the entire blockchain of things, how do you envisage it being in the future? Do you think uh, we'll be able to actually implement this in the near future? Do you think it'll it'll take more time? So we're already there. We have the technology. We have the blockchain which works properly. We have the Internet of Things, which we can communicate data from the Internet of Things into the blockchain. We're working on some projects to look at the supply chain, to monitor the supply chain, where the consumer of goods will have guarantees of where his products are based upon the IoT devices that are feeding into the blockchain. We have guarantees for the distributor who are sure that different stakeholders in the supply chain have transported their goods from their warehouses to somewhere else using the IoT devices. So we're there. It's more a question of will we reach adoption of having people want to use the blockchain for these types of purposes? Do people need to build these levels of guarantees? And I think the question is more on what do we want to decentralize? So many people think that the blockchain is about removing all central service providers, removing all governments, removing all banks. I think that's not a way to go. We need to decide which single central authorities we like and which ones we want to remove. 
So what kind of governance uh, framework would you need for this to work? And since you mentioned logistics and delivering goods between countries, obviously different countries would have to agree on this. And what would happen if different countries develop different governance frameworks? So there's a technology issue here that everything that happens in the blockchain is guaranteed. Now, if one jurisdiction is using blockchain A and another jurisdiction is using blockchain B, they're not going to communicate together and you lose the trust that is built into the blockchain. So we need some mechanism to allow for different blockchains to provide the guarantees to the different jurisdictions because otherwise we're we're ending up in a world where we have blockchain lock-in. So that is one particular angle we're taking in our research. Can we bridge the gap of different blockchain systems? The second issue is that of uh, legal frameworks. And whilst blockchain can be used within a legal framework, it can't do much for the social elements and the legal elements of how different legal jurisdictions work together. What it can do is allow for more transparency. It can allow for more automation. However, um, that legal bridge still needs to be overcome. Now, Different jurisdictions are looking at providing different legal frameworks for cryptocurrencies. In Malta, we've also created a legal framework that looks at the blockchain. So when you're using a blockchain system, it may or may not do what you expected it to do because the code may or may not be written in the way that you expected it to be written. So in our legal framework, what we've done is we've said that if the blockchain does not do what it was intended to do, in a court of law, the English description will prevail over the implementation. So that's a nice way to bridge the technology world to the legal world as well. But uh, building on your example in the article with the wines, so let's say the wine is produced in Chile and there's no governmental or whatever framework in in there, but uh, the importer is in the European Union, which let's imagine recognizes this kind of technology and and has the necessary legal guarantees. So would the blockchain then be stored, the the blockchain for the whole Uh, supply chain be stored here, uh, let's say in Malta where the purchaser is based. There's different ways of implementing a blockchain. You could implement, use a public blockchain where anyone can host a node and the application is running over all the nodes. So you might be looking at the supply chain, the wine supply chain, where anyone can see where that wine bottle was produced and then anyone can see what grapes went into it and that it was properly inspected. The question is, does a wine producer want to have that information as public? Perhaps in a wine bottle, there's no harm in having all that information public. Perhaps it's providing more transparency. If the wine producer or the an authority decides that they don't want that information public, they can have what we call a private blockchain. So it really depends on the application, whether they're going to release that information at that application to be public or private. They have both options. My personal opinion is that the supply chain, as long as it's not releasing perhaps confidential information that could provide some sort of uh, competing competitor to gain an edge over uh, by seeing that data, there's probably nothing wrong with having it public. The nice assurances to the users are that out there are they can scan that QR code before buying it and say, ah, excellent. So I have the public blockchain here. I can see the data and I can see exactly what went on. However, one big question, one problem we need to overcome is well, there are still points of trust. Even though all that information went into the blockchain, how do we know that the auditor who said that that grape is the right grape to use, had the right conditions, how do we know that he put in that confirmation in a correct manner? Or how do we know that he didn't fake that? So one particular avenue that we're trying to investigate is rather than look at producer-specific, farmer-specific blockchain mechanisms, can we come up with mechanisms that are more centered around an authority, much like the DOCG or the IGT wine certification that we have in Malta? And let's say they use their own private 
blockchain, which is only for wines. But then uh, the owner of one of the wine exporting companies happens to be a BEP, a politically exposed person. And one government requests uh, the information from the blockchain to be used for their investigation, for example. Do you think this has to be coded from uh, get-go, from from the beginning, before these suppliers, let's say, input information? Yeah, definitely. So the decision needs to be made on an application case-by-case basis on deciding what information should be public, what information should not be public. I think it's also very important that the consumers out there are aware of the types of systems they're using and whether their data is going to be in the public domain or in a private domain. However, I I don't think it would be right that um, authorities define for each different case, what data should be public or private. I, I think then we have to go look into the GDPR and decide what data should be in the public sphere and what's not. And that's actually an interesting problem that we have as well. Um, GDPR is contradictory to blockchain. GDPR states um, you have the right to be forgotten. If you want to remove your data, you can remove it. The blockchain uh, states you can never remove that data. So um, there's some interesting challenges to work on. And coming back to the Internet of Things, there have been some articles and some investigations on how abusive partners, for example, have been used using Internet of Things for domestic violence when they have an order not to approach a person, but they can set their thermostat or they can affect different objects in their house to torture them, basically. How do you think these cases of abuse could be prevented? So... There's very little that you can do to the IoT device except impose certain ways of developing code that will make sure that they're not abused in a certain manner or imposing security concerns. That being said, if you integrate the IoT device to communicate with the blockchain, then you could have an immutable record of any actions that were taking place. And you'd have a means of investigating whether someone triggered a device to warm up or to terrorize the other individual. I think my last question would be uh, the article mentions something about uh, how heavily reliant this entire system is on the internet and it says solutions for connectivity are being looked into. So what are they? 5G network? What are we looking into? So even if it's 5G network, all the internet protocols, everything that we do nowadays is based on a point-to-point communication link, um, which means that they're not as decentralized as we think they are. So there are initiatives looking out there on mesh networks where it's not using the internet uh, per se, but it's using radio frequencies to broadcast signals. That was all from Rethink for today. Tell us what you think about this episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook, ThinkUniMalta on Twitter, or ThinkUni on Instagram. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts are Daiva Rapachkaiter and I'm Shruti Sundaresan. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now.